This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 511 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 378 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show this week British police officers James, Sam, and Joe. So we discuss a host of topics from their interesting journeys into the British police force to the knife crime epidemic and defensive tactics, rural policing versus urban, and then we explore their Surfwell project where they have had incredible success using surfing as a positive coping mechanism and healing mechanism for fellow responders with mental health challenges. 
Before we get to that interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating you leave truly does elevate this project, making it easier for people to find. And this is a free library, whether individually or organizationally, for every single person on planet Earth. So all I ask if you're listening to this now is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who hasn't heard them yet. So with that being said, I introduce to you James, Sam, and Joe. Enjoy. All right, so James, Sam, and Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to A, all gather around this microphone, <laughs> and B, come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Beautiful. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, so we're over in the UK. Um, we're based in North Devon, um, which is a lovely part of the UK, down where the sun always shines most of the time. <laughs> not today. <laughs> not today. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's just like England here that we've had a bunch of like real low-key storms, so it's been grey and drizzly, and it's just like being back at home. Uh, sounds sounds like familiar. Yeah. Summertime, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I love to start chronologically. So I will actually take just a, you know, a couple minutes with each of you and you know learn about kind of your early life and what brought you into this profession. So I start with you, James. Where were you born? And just tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. So really, really very traditional background. Um, my dad was a policeman and my mum was a nurse. <laughs> I was born in 1982 in Wiltshire, uh, which is a kind of fairly rural part of England. Um, went to school, uh, grew up in exactly the same place, kind of went to school locally and remained there really till I left to go to university in Bath. Um, whilst at university, enjoyed the typical university kind of life, really. Um, always vowed I would never, ever join the police. Um, although something happened, I'm not quite sure what, but then I ended up joining the police. Um, <laughs> my lifelong dream was always to be a pilot. I always wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot, but unfortunately my eyesight, which I get ripped about continually, put paid to that. Um, so yeah, ended up joining the police. Um, started out in Dorset Police, which is down on the south coast. And then uh, the, the love of my life, my wife and I met at training school. So we ended up both moving up to Bristol, working on a really kind of... Um, a really cool role actually on a targeting team. So where we used to do all the kind of fun side of policing, as I call it. So the smashing indoors and the drugs raids, all that kind of stuff. Police chases. I've had my fill of that. And then we moved to Devon as a family <coughs> uh, six, seven years ago now. And we're happily settled here now, really. So that's my kind of story. Beautiful. Staying on the eyesight for a second, what deficiency did you have? Uh, well, just slightly um, terrible. But, yeah, <laughs> slightly terrible. I say <laughs> this has got off to a serious start. Uh, no, see, it was. I've got an astigmatism essentially, which means that I just squint at everything <laughs> famously. Because it just it just brings up a um, well, a couple of things. Firstly, it's funny because all the, the towns that you mentioned is where I grew up. I grew up just outside of Bath, went to school in Bath. Um, but also the eyesight thing. I was told I couldn't be a fireman in England because I was colorblind. Because those little, those little, you know, books with all the dots on them, um, come to realize because I'm not the sharpest tool in the box that I'm not. I'm just color deficient. But yeah, they were. But, but at school age, they were like, you can't be a firefighter, you can't be a pilot. So you can go, you know, in a pancake factory or wherever you, <laughs> wherever you find yourself. <laughs> that was exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> We've got lots more in common than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, well, staying on you for a second. What about surfing? Had you had you found surfing back then? 
Yeah, so um, family holidays in Cornwall, we always went to Watergate Bay um, and various kind of places across Devon, Cornwall, Dorset. I was always begging my parents to get me a surfboard, get me a surfboard, not one of those rubbish foam ones, a real surfboard so I can go in the sea. And um, yeah, just I, I remember vividly a holiday in Watergate Bay, which is my favourite beach in the world, just kind of north um, north of Newquay. Uh, well, sorry, northeast Newquay. And um, just, yeah, literally just used to go there all the time as a kid. Absolutely loved it. And then kind of just developed this kind of passion for surfing from there, really. And then it kind of took a bit of a break where I got into bodyboarding at secondary school, never really lived by the sea close enough to be able to do it regularly. Um, and then Bournemouth really was my first taste of surfing. And for anyone listening that thinks Bournemouth doesn't get waves, it definitely does. So <laughs> it definitely does. <laughs> There's not great waves. However, there are enough waves that you can learn. So, yeah, a few of, um, you know, work colleagues, we used to get kayaks and go out and kind of catch low waves and, We'd always travel to the north coast of Devon or Cornwall to come and catch more waves together and try and push ourselves into bigger waves and just kind of snowboard from there really into something where obviously now I live in Devon, I can surf much, much more. Although children kind of put paid to that and there's usually running around between gymnastics and football clubs limit the amount of surfing they can do. <laughs> they need to have the clubs on the beach so you can surf <laughs> while they do it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> All right, well then moving to Sam, same first question. Tell me about your, your early life, what your parents did and how many siblings? Yeah, hey James. Um, so I've got a brother, um, and my parents. My mum is now an artist and has been for quite a long time. Uh, my dad used to manage a leisure centre. So I'm from um, Pembrokeshire in Wales originally. So I've always lived very close to the coast. Um, and yeah, that was that was kind of where I got my first introduction to surfing. Really, a very young age, um, just sort of always being near the beach and always getting down to the beach as much as possible and um i've kind of used it since well certainly since joining the police as a kind of um coping mechanism for all the stuff that we deal with and not necessarily sort of consciously at first i think just sort of subconsciously just you have a you have a pretty terrible day at work and you just kind of naturally go and do something that makes you feel better and then um i think over time come to realize that that's probably a bit of a coping mechanism that i've used all through my police career yeah, no, brilliant. And we're going to obviously expand on that a lot more, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a combination of so many positive elements that I've you know, been exposed to now for four years talking to people. Um, but you mentioned Wales. I just spoke to my mum right before we started recording. I, I was literally about to hit pay on a flight home. And then I guess all the, you know, the countries are freaking out again. Um, but they, she said, oh, Wales is thinking about not letting English people in. And I was like, how the fuck yeah, are you going to do that logistically? So is everyone just going to lock arms all the way up the Welsh border? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's slightly complicated. I think as soon as, um, yeah, as soon as you get these different borders and different countries and different rules, it does make things quite, quite tricky. Yes, quite especially when there's no fence on, you know, aforementioned border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, very difficult to manage. <laughs> so, all right. Well, then, um, Sam, as far as uh, your journey into the police force, kind of, was that something you'd always wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, it was actually. I can't, I can't honestly remember what first got me interested in it. Um, it's just as far back as I can remember. It's just always what I, what I wanted to do, really. Um, but yeah, I can't remember where that, where that originated. Um, Cop shows but I went, in the 80s. Yeah, cop shows in the 80s. <laughs> the probably, bill. Uh, first lethal <laughs> weapon movie I ever watched. It's a bit different policing in Devon to those, but yeah. Brilliant. But um, yeah, I've always wanted to do it. Um, 
I I was going to join in Wales, where I'm from, but they weren't recruiting at the time. So I ended up coming over to Devon and Cornwall because they were the only force recruiting. Um, and I wasn't too adverse to that because they've got a fantastic coastline for surfing as well. So I could carry on doing that. Beautiful. Well, a question, because talking about policing smaller towns, is Hot Fuzz actually based on a true story? Yeah, no, it's actually a documentary. <laughs> a lot of people don't realise it's a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. It's um, yeah, surprisingly accurate in a lot of ways. <laughs> All right. Well, then um, moving to Joe. So, same question: early life. Um, you know what your parents did, and how many siblings? Hi. Yeah. Well, um, I was brought up in Buckinghamshire, so completely landlocked. Um, my father was a car salesman, and my mum was a dance teacher. Um, I have two left feet, and um, I don't know much about cars, so. I haven't really followed in their footsteps. Um, I wanted to be a teacher originally as opposed to a police officer. Um, so I was going down those lines. And then our family holidays used to be in North Devon. My cousins had a campsite, so we used to come down all the time. We used to love spending time at the beach. And then uh, one summer in, in France, I grabbed a surfboard, um, paddled out the back, and um, was the only young, small female person out there and was getting absolutely annihilated, but loved every minute of it. Came back, tried it in Devon, and I've never looked back. As soon as I was old enough to leave home, literally got my little moped, drove miles to the campsite that my um, cousins lived on, rocked up and said, can I live here? Can I stay here? And um, yeah, just followed my passion for surfing, really. Beautiful. Eventually... Yeah, eventually became a, <laughs> funny enough, a police officer. I, I went to do my teaching degree, um, but the university that accepted me was um, near London, and I just, um, I was just really upset because I just never could get to the ocean. Um, so looked at what else I could do, and Dorset Police were recruiting at the time, so joined Dorset, and um, I was really lucky because I, I got to work on the marine unit there for five years. So I spent a lot of my time, well, most of my time, to be honest, down the beach, patrolling Pool Harbour um, and the Dorset <laughs> coastline. And then, as, as James said, um, that's, that's got Bournemouth there. And while I do get surf, it's not a huge amount of surf. Um, so soon as I had my time on the marine unit, I transferred up to Devon and Cornwall and uh, spend most of my time surfing when I'm not working. Um, so now what we've rolled into with um, Surfwell and our surf therapy program is just absolutely perfect for me. Um, absolutely love it. Brilliant. I'm glad I asked the background questions because there's a couple of things. Obviously, your your journey into surfing is really cool to hear, but also all three of you were like, and then one day I woke up and I was a police officer. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wasn't that like, oh, when I was three. <laughs> no, but it's brilliant. Though. Believer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then just as, just to kind of, paint a picture of you know the the journey through british policing what about the the physical fitness um entry level standards and then the maintenance of that through the career um yeah, any, anyone can grab the mic on this one it's um it, it's quite contentious actually but it's uh so i suppose we've all got probably a similar level of service jokes we've got slightly more than us but between 17 and 20 24 24 years yeah. So when, certainly when we joined, I mean, I was a special in Bath, actually, strange enough. Um, in the year 2000, I started. So back then, we had to do level 10.4, I think it was, on the bleep test. And then a number of press-ups. And well, so there was, there was a, 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 a kind of a strength and agility and a speed kind of 
um, cardiovascular type element to it. Um, and you were definitely, you'd notice, you know, you'd notice that you'd done a fitness test. It was quite strenuous afterwards. Um, if you were fairly physically fit and trained, it was, it was achievable, but definitely you'd fit, you'd feel it. Um, whereas now the level is 5.4 on the bleep test. So they've dropped the, the fitness level requirements for entry massively. Um, there's a number of reasons which we won't go into why that's happened. Um, some of which we're not really fully aware of, to be fair, but there's some, there's definitely a lower level of fitness test for general entry into the police. There are specific roles still. So public order policing has a slightly higher fitness test requirement, which is an annual refresher um, and firearms as well. And then certain other roles, specialist roles within the police will have their own fitness level requirements based on the individual needs of that role. <clears throat> but it's a, as I say, contentious. It's quite contentious, the, the level of fitness required. Really, you could theoretically join the police, do the fitness test, and then never be required to do a fitness test again if you don't go into another certain role. So, it, yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it's a difficult one, really. It's not particularly high levels of fitness um, for a number of different reasons. There's different, different people with different sort of opinions on it. You, we, we encounter people who think that the fitness test isn't, it, it just isn't anywhere near strenuous enough. It doesn't push people as far as it should. Um, and I think from the limited knowledge that I have of the American standards um, for joining, it's, it's not anywhere near the sort of stuff that they have to go through for the most part. Um, but then equally, we've got, there are some really, really good officers in specialist roles that don't necessarily require them to maintain a really high level of fitness to be very good at what they do. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, really. Yeah, well, it's something that I've heard, you know, obviously from from multiple agencies around the world. And, you know, some do it very well. Some, like you said, the standards have slipped. And I know there are political pushes from whatever reason that, that bring it down. And just with that, we're taking that element out completely. So not, not talking about anything specifically. But me personally, in my career, I have noticed that when I've worked for an agency that set the bar extremely high, and even in the probationary year that we have here, they're not afraid to let you go if you don't meet that standard. You end up with an incredible group of men and women that are extremely good at their job and then maintain you know, a good overall health through their career as well. Conversely, I've seen that when the bar is set very low or is allowed to slip, the opposite happens. So, you know, not even talking about specific, you know, uh, political uh, decision, but overall, with you having pretty, pretty exp expansive careers, really, so far in law enforcement, what have you witnessed as far as lowering the standards and the 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 pool of people that now walk through the door? I yeah, much the same as James. I've I've seen it go down, and um, we joined at almost the exact same time. I think about sixteen, seventeen years ago. So yeah, very very similar experience. Really, it was. It was a certain standard when um, when I joined, and you you felt like you'd undertaken a fitness test, and um, and currently the way it is now, you kind of feel like you've been out for a very brief jog, and it's not really <laughs> it doesn't really push you very far, um, in all honesty. Um, I I think most most people certainly feel like it it, it should be higher. There is, there is a requirement to be, you know, physically, physically fit and, and able. And it's, it's more than just the actual role. It's kind of looking after yourself as well. If you keep yourself fit and healthy, you're far more likely to um, not suffer with your mental health and everything else as a result. So there's, there's lots of reasons why it, you know, personal opinion, why I think it, it should be better than it is. 
I think also it's like you say is there's an expectation that if you've got a higher standard to maintain then you'll obviously put more effort into maintaining that standard so if you know that in six months time you're going to have to pass a fitness test and you run the risk of either losing your job or being moved to a different alternative role then you are going to maintain that fitness level if it means something to you so it's, it's a hard one because obviously you've got the own personal um you know people's own personal motivation and sometimes that's the first thing that can slip when you're busy and when you're stressed your physical exercise and your physical kind of motivation can slip but it's something that I, you do see certainly in, in certain roles within policing yeah, but it's it's really tricky like like i said earlier you because I, I can think of quite a few individuals who i've worked with i, I was a detective for quite a while um really? dealt with words that that James doesn't encounter like evidence and things like that. <laughs> 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 I'm a very different police background. <laughs> there's a bit of you probably picking up there's a little bit of banter between our, our different backgrounds. But and I I've worked with people who are just, you know, absolutely incredible in that line of work, but would struggle to to necessarily pass the current fitness test. So it's yeah, it's very difficult. It's very tricky to to say for sure whether it's it's necessary, I think, in, in certain roles, like the real frontline roles, the response roles, we call them, where you're, you're in uniform and you're active and you're on the ground. It, it, yeah, I, don't, I think it's kind of unavoidable that you need to have that, that decent level of fitness, really. I think when, when I joined back in 1996, for me, when I eventually decided to become a police officer, it was a career decision. Um, and it's something I was very proud of then and I'm still very proud of now. Um, and I maintain that fitness and it well, I had to train in order to pass that fitness test. And through my initial part of the service, I had to keep that up. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't pass. Um, now, you can get away with not training because the level is so much lower. Um, and I think what I've personally noticed is that people joined way back when as a career, but now they also use policing as a stepping stone to go somewhere else. Um, and I think um, where you can join and you don't have to be you know beast yourself almost to get into it it does offer that opportunity to become a stepping stone whether or not that's the right thing or it's not um but i i've definitely noticed that as a difference well staying on you joe what about the defensive tactics stuff because obviously you know here in the u.s every officer has a firearm as well back home that's not the same case so there's a more reliance on you know the hands-on stuff and there should be here too the, the, the firearm should be a you know last resort obviously but um what was that kind of training like when you first entered in the late 90s to be honest I, for me i don't think it's changed that much just on a on, on your basic training um we, we would do our our tactical training, you know, our, our hands-on. It's very much, it's so different, I can imagine. I've not been to the States and experienced policing over there. I can imagine it's very different. Um, we, talk, we kind of talk the talk over here. In the 26 years that I've served, I've drawn my baton once and I've used my CS spray twice. And all the other time, I've not actually, apart from arresting someone and laying hands-on and telling them that, you know, you're under arrest. I've actually not been in physical fights as such. I've definitely talked my way out of a lot of issues <laughs> and a lot of situations. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, guys? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I've, I've noticed it. So the, the training itself hasn't really changed very much in terms of what we what we do. But I can I think the frequency 
certainly. And it, the thing with the, the UK police is it's regional. So you've got all these different police forces and they tend to have different approaches and they make their own decisions about how often they train and all that, um, exactly what they train and that sort of thing. So I don't know how it translates across other, other police forces, only the ones that I've experienced, but it, it used to be more frequent than it is. So the training that we used to have was, I think when I joined, it was every three months that you had to do um, a day's worth of training. And now I think it's every six months that we do it roughly. So it's, yeah, it, it has sort of declined a bit. I think if you really, if you really want to be effective and, and confident, um, you're almost dependent on looking at some external training as well, like various forms of combat training that there's so much of that available now um, in the public sector. But yeah, external stuff is um, is definitely a help. Yeah, for me personally, um, I used to play um, rugby quite a bit, and that physical contact and you know tackling people and rolling around, um, I think that enabled me to have that confidence. Where if I did have to lay hands on, um, I got it more from that than the actual training that we did. Um, I found that actually more realistic, to be honest. Yeah, well, it sounds very pertinent. You're getting out of that comfort zone too. I mean, there's there's no substitute for that, you know kind of full contact training, whether it's actual martial arts or something like rugby. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, what about jujitsu? That's kind of, there's a push. I wouldn't say it's mainstream, but there's definitely a push for getting that into law enforcement. I know even in, in the UK, you've got Reorg there who's um, doing really well with the Royal Marines and, and jujitsu. Um, what about the the police? There's not, we don't, again, because it, it's sort of regional, other other areas may have experienced more of a push than, than we've seen in our, our force, but there's not really any um, any push for that in our in our force currently. Um, but I think it's definitely something that has that has its uses. I Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it can only be of benefit to learn how to handle yourself better and to handle those conflict situations better. Absolutely. Well, Joe, just going back to you for a second, one area that I've had quite a few people talk about um, is de-escalation because you have, you know, a, let's say, for example, just to use an extreme, extreme uh, example, you have an officer that is deconditioned, that hasn't taken their fitness seriously, hasn't done any, you know, real defensive tactics training. So the go-to a lot of times is the weapon or the taser. Um, whereas I've had some high-level incredible you know physical specimens that are high level martial artists that are able to de-escalate obviously partly probably just because of the the their you know physical prowess and and you know that kind of dissuades the the person they're trying to detain but another thing is they have the confidence in their skills so they can rely on on that the the verbal elements so what are some of the the kind of common denominators that you've witnessed in your career um, that have worked de-escalating positively, you know, positive violent situations? Oh, um, I can only speak for myself, really, in that um, I find being a female officer in um, in the UK do- does help um, because um, where I've had male colleagues alongside, um, they're more likely to turn on them and to invoke reaction from them. Um, whereas females, I think, if you're confident um, and you portray that confidence and they have an inkling that actually you're going to make them look pretty, pretty foolish if um, you get into that conflict and, and the female officer comes out on top, so to speak, want a better phrase, um, then, you know, I think that helps massively. Um, what, do you, what do you guys think? I don't, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, so. I, I've worked in some sort of more rural policing roles, not not quite hot fuzz, but similar. <laughs> and um, and you can be like you can you can be the only person within twenty miles sometimes, and you you know, and it's a uh, it's an eye opening experience, and you can deal with with all sorts of different people, and even in even in these sort of really remote rural locations, you, you just don't know what you're going to encounter, and. I think there's been a couple of times when, because I've worked in in a couple of cities as well, you you kind of tailor how you how you react and how you talk to people and how you deal with them depending on your situation. And I've definitely fallen back on on the talking element a lot more in those rural situations where you know your nearest officer is sort of you know 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away, um, and you're sort of out there on your own. Whereas in a city when you know, there's a couple of colleagues just around the corner. You you can deal with things a bit more robustly or a bit differently. Yeah. Now I know traditionally you guys used to be in pairs. Is that not the case anymore? No, not not very much. It's um, a numbers thing at the moment, and um, it's they try as much as possible, but there's all sorts of different. It, again, it depends on on the force and the area and the decisions around what's required at that time and and everything else. But um, we can we do single patrol quite often, right? Yeah. See, again, the, the common denominator just comes through over and over again. Where you know it comes down to to budgets and budgets get cut and cut and cut. But you know the the reality is it's it's going to be a lot more costly on the the back end. You know, it's so heartbreaking to see in the UK and Australia and you know in in uh, America here that the men and women on the front line are being asked to do the same with less and less and less. And I think, you know, the COVID impact on the NHS is a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it's a natural consequence of, you know, hard, hard economic times. It's, um, yeah, it's, I think it's difficult across all, all different sectors now. Yeah. No, and I, that's the thing. I think that if we reprioritize it, I don't think we're in that hard economic times. You know what I mean? It's just that we, we, we come out of the the one, um, you know, the the two thousand eight, two thousand twelve kind of slump that we had, and we're definitely on the up curve until this happened. But I don't see fire stations being reopened. I don't see staffing being put back to the way it should have been. You know, and the same with the NHS. I mean, it's a an amazing system. I re- I I talk about the NHS all the time when it's fully funded. I watched my ninety nine year old granddad have some of the most amazing care after paying Bupa for years and years and years till they priced him out. And the NHS were incredible. But like you said, it was regional, but that's what we need to do is where the NHS is great. And we'll talk about this in mental health in a bit too. We need to be able to mirror that all over the country so everyone has that same good care. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be about access for all, hasn't it? Absolutely. Well, again, kind of talking about your early careers, what did mental health training look like back then? We'll start with you, James. Uh, So mental health training has really kind of gone through depending on what role I'm in. So the most recent role was a custody environment. So it was kind of fairly specific to that role. Um, So I've been a custody sergeant for a couple of years, since 2017, up until early part of this year. Um, And obviously that there is where people have reached their critical low. They've come into an environment where they've been arrested for the first time or they've had a breakdown or, you know, whatever crisis they've been in has resulted in them coming into the criminal justice system so being arrested or, or even detained under the mental health act um so there's a lot of um a lot of training in relation to that type of um uh, encounter um what is getting better is the mental health training for for our own staff so around our own staff welfare prison so 
when I first joined, there was very little in relation to staff mental health and how to look after yourself and what kind of issues and stress and trauma you can face. Um, I remember a, a talk at training school which said, you know, as police officers, you'll retire and then most of you will die within six years of leaving because <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, but it's true though. It's true, yeah. And that really stuck with me that a lot of um, a lot of police and emergency services workers, for whatever reason, because it was quite an unhealthy lifestyle back in the day, um, with shift work and, and alcohol as a kind of, uh, as a coping strategy, really. Um, so that's changed massively. And there's a really good package of support across the board. Um, it needs to get better and it is getting better, but it's definitely on the up. Um, and we're recognising that actually this job can be traumatic, stressful, the shift, the, the lack of, um, you know, the lack of physical exercise. Sometimes if you're so tired that you physically can't even you know, bother to go to the gym, all those kind of things about looking after yourself. So in terms of mental health training internally, I think there's definitely a big upsurge recently. Right, Sam, your perspective. Yeah, I think much much the same as James, really. We've probably got very similar sort of um, outlooks on it from joining at the same time and going through policing at the same time. I think it's it's changed a lot, and I think it's definitely, it's definitely improving in terms of the mental health training that we receive now. It's definitely something I would say is a lot better than, than what we had previously, and I think maybe that's, maybe that's a consequence of the sort of work a lot of what we're dealing with at the moment. So in the UK especially, the police get, drawn into um, dealing with mental health a lot more than we used to um, for various different reasons. And maybe it's just a lot more prevalent now as well, a lot more understood. Um, so there's not, we often consider mental health first now, whereas it, it maybe used to be that we would turn up to an incident and just consider offences um, and what, what offences have been committed and do we need to arrest this person? Whereas now you're almost, your primary thought is, is there a mental health aspect to this? Is there something at play? Do they need um, assistance or help? So, yeah, it's definitely a lot better than it used to be. And Joe? Um, I think when I first joined, um, mental health training for um, myself and my colleagues, I actually can't recall any specific training. Um, moving on more recently, it's much more, it's much more the topic. So, Back, for example, when I was working on the Marine unit, um, we would recover uh, bodies quite regularly. And I think even back then, if I was to go, I've got a, an issue, this is uh, affecting my mental health, I need to talk about, some, uh, to, uh, talk about it to someone. Um, it was very much the stigma that was attached to that would potentially, even for myself, um, stop me from maybe discussing it as much as I would. Um, Whereas now it's much more, it's, it's become more of a norm at work to say, do you know, I, my mental health is, is suffering um, and it's not looked upon anywhere near as, as much as it used to be in relation to the stigma attached. Um, Welfare-wise, um, even as a line manager in the last few years, they've introduced at one point a, a questionnaire. So when you had your regular updates with your officers, you could go through a questionnaire, see how they were feeling, and it, what, it opened up questions and ask them to question how their mental health was but the problem with that was that you would be constrained by time you're sat in the office uh, your radio's going it and because of that you know that lack of time and the lack of um, officers around um, it wasn't brilliant you didn't have that really lovely cushion part of the time where you could just 
genuinely talk about things without getting interrupted that has got better and it's it's something that we very much um, look at as part of our surf well program um, and that we have very um, specific um, points in our program whereby people can actually just let out whatever they want to and talk about whatever they want to and that really hits home and that's hit home for me throughout my career yeah, that's fantastic, and that's that's what I'm I'm hearing is one very encouraging thing. Even though we're seeing fitness standards and you know testing standards and entry standards dropping, the least the mental health stigma is starting to fall, and and some really good people are taking the you know the balls by the horn, whether it's our blue light or Surfwell or you know, these other organisations that are you know forcing change, and 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 we're definitely seeing an upturn in in you know the the acceptance that mental health is not a weakness but quite the opposite it's a, a challenge to forge resilience definitely mm-hmm. yeah definitely right well i i want to get obviously onto to the surf world, but one more area i want to i want to kind of delve into first is what you're seeing as far as the population so one thing that i've really kind of started uh, exploring is is the addiction being a mental health issue so then when you take a step back and you think well, okay well we're we're arresting all these addicts is that the best system or is there a way we could do that better but before i kind of load that question what are you seeing just in the general population as far as level of addiction or, or the impact of you know drugs on a lot of the crimes that you're seeing at the moment again that's a really difficult one because does you know, does the mental health issue or problem come before the drugs, which is the reason why they started the drugs in the first place, or does the mental health stuff come as a result of using the drugs? And that is a, an argument or a discussion that's significantly longer than what we've got today, I think. <laughs> we'll all agree on that. But um, I suppose in summary, there is, um, you know, various, there, there are part, various parts of the UK that have got more of a drug problem or more drug use than others. Um, we're very lucky in the Southwest that we've not really got a significant issue Um a lot of what you see and hear in the news in relation to county lines is obviously drugs coming from bigger cities to smaller coastal and rural towns. Um, that's been something that's affected us quite quite significantly recently. I think the whole argument around drugs is probably a little bit more complex, as I said, than we've got time to, to fully delve into. But it's, it's certainly something that is um, it either fuels or supports the issues around mental health, I think. Yeah, there have definitely been sort of trends in it and, and differences. We had... Don't know if you're aware about the the whole sort of legal highs that that came in a little while ago, um, but we had a, a sort of a, a upsurge of various forms of drugs that were that were legal at the time because they hadn't been legislated against, um, and it, it took a little bit of time for the legislation to catch up. Um, and so while those drugs were out there, they were being sold from shops and various places, and there were people who had a lot of access to those and. There were, there were a lot of theories that they were causing mental health issues because of the toxicity. So we had a, And there's still a problem with it in a lot of the prisons. They talk about um, spice in prisons, and that's still a, an issue. Um, that was one of the legal highs that was kind of out on the street, but obviously that's now been legislated against. So they're all, there is no such thing anymore as a, as a legal high as such. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something, like James says, it's, it's really hard to know whether they cause mental health or whether mental health is is the, what leads to the drug taking in the first place and where there's underlying issues there at play. So it's a very, very difficult thing to, to know for sure, really. Yeah, well, <clears throat> excuse me. 
My uh, my family, a couple of my family members moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about the story a lot, but I think it's it's worth getting the perspective from people that are in positions like you are, especially if you were in, you know, the drug enforcement element. But they had one of the, the well, they had the worst addiction crisis in Europe. Um, and at the turn of the millennia, they basically decriminalized all addiction. So it wasn't smuggling, wasn't <laughs> selling. They still, you know, arrested and, and threw the book at those people. But they took the addicts and they took all the budget that they used to spend on policing and prisons and court systems and they funneled it into addiction programs and drug creation and psychological counseling. And less than 10 years later, they had the lowest addiction rate in in Europe. So when you look at that model and then Switzerland's another one that's actually legalized. And again, it's not to promote taking it, it's to address the underlying issues and stop forcing people into the shadows. If they are addicts and you keep them in a clinical setting rather than give some shit bag, you know, that's murdering people over it, the power over that addict. So again, to purely hypothetical question, but if that kind of uh, philosophy was brought into the UK, you know, what kind of impact do you think that would have on on what you're seeing and also your ability to do your job better too? There's a massively difficult thing to comment on. Um, it's something that is discussed quite often and you see it discussed in, in the UK in the political arena and you know things quite a lot. And I think there are different people who have different opinions on on whether um, whether that would be effective or not. Certainly people are a lot more clever than me, I think, who would um, who would debate the pros and cons of, of that sort of thing all day long. Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I... I I've always enforced the laws that are in place and while it's illegal to do it, that's, that's my job to enforce it. And that's what I'll continue to do. If they change the law and they legalize it, then, then so be it. And I'll, I'll police accordingly. But um, yeah, big, big debate. I think on that one. Anyone else want to chime in before we move on? No, I think Sam's covered that. Quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very politically correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, we we can be at times. <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, I'll just put my my two cents in. Then, for me, it's a human element, you know. And and when you look at the history of the prohibition of drugs, it comes from such a, an evil place initially. Then there was pressure put on the UK to follow suit. We didn't have that until in the middle of last century. I know there's a huge, you know, uh, pushback because, as you said, if you're in law enforcement, you've been following these these laws and all of a sudden you're told they're not laws anymore then that hasn't you know well then what the hell are we doing this for feeling the same way as, as soldiers when they leave Ramadi or somewhere and, and that falls to the enemy hands again they feel the same thing in that so I understand you know completely the issues but um, for me I think you know we, we've done it this way it hasn't worked it's definitely time whatever it looks like it's time for us to kind of try a different approach yeah yeah I think I think the three of us would probably in the same position and that we're all we're all pretty open-minded in terms of you know our our policing and what we're asked to do and we're very flexible but it's just our currently it's our job to enforce it if that changes it changes but um probably something that we decided by people who will be arguing about it in a lot more detail than that than we will yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then moving on, one other one other kind of tangent before we get to uh, really kind of do a, uh, start exploring surf well, the, the knife crime. So something I'm standing on the other side of the Atlantic, so I'm not in the middle of it. Um, but you keep hearing that, that that's a growing issue. Is that something that you're seeing in your areas? 
Uh, not too much, really. We like we say that there's uh, we mentioned earlier in relation to the drug use. There are certain parts of the UK which have got their own certain issues. Um, you know, we've got issues that are probably worse here than other parts of the north and the southeast have got other issues that are worse than the north. So it, it, I, across the country, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the press around knife crime and issues surrounding knife crime. Um, certainly where we are, it's not a, a major issue and I think people are quite safe around where we are. Brilliant. Well, that's good to hear. All right. So then, <coughs> so there you are, you're, you know, you're, you're deep in your careers now. So tell me about the genesis of the Surfwell project. So that, Really, um, so obviously you've heard a little bit of our backstory. Sam and I um, and Joe um, obviously all use surfing as a, as a coping strategy for ourselves, really. And um, Sam and I both worked together before on a response team, so the, the 909 kind of emergency frontline first responding team. We were both sergeants on a team two and a half, just over two and a half years ago. And we'd had a, a complex kind of staffing issue, really. We'd had a rough day, gone out for a surf as we used to do. And um, we're sat in the water thinking right, what are we going to do with this person? She'd been really badly assaulted um, and we were kind of managing her return and her welfare and she didn't really want to go through traditional routes of occupational health or um, engage with traditional kind of support mechanisms. So we we both kind of, I suppose at the time, kind of rather flippantly said, wouldn't it be just great if we could take her surfing? That would sort everything. Um, and then that kind of prompted us to have a bit more of a serious light bulb moment and to think, actually, there is probably something in this. And then the research kind of started and it, it literally snowballed from a, a, a daft thought almost in the water to uh, actually there's really something in this for people who are struggling and who want to engage with help but don't feel that traditional methods are suitable, so counselling or all the usual kind of stuff that we would offer. So really that is where it all started from that little sparkle. And um, we did a lot of research, um, lots and lots of reading around the fact that surf therapy is actually a thing that exists. We'd, we'd heard of the wave project before, which obviously started over in the UK at Watergate Bay. Um, and where we live, it's kind of fairly prevalent and used to, to support children with autism, other mental health issues. And, and it's had really, really good effects. So we did some research and thought, well, actually, if it's good for mental health issues and it's good for, for people who have suffered traumatic issues, such as the military, then there's got to be a way that it's got to work for the police and emergency services. And literally, just heads buried in books for months on end thinking this has got to work for the police. This is, this has got to work. Um, and that's, that's really kind of where it all started. And obviously there's, you know, fast forward to where we are now, which is like hugely successful, really, really successful trial. And we're looking, you know, we've got great hopes where we're going to take it from now. All right. So Sam, give me, uh, actually let's say Joe, cause I haven't heard from you for a little bit. Um, give me an overview of, you know, what it looks like. You have, you have someone that reaches out to you says they want to be part of the project as, you know, a recipient. What does that look like for them? So, um, so they'll get in touch. And what's really important is that, um, so I'm the, I'm the referral officer actually. So they'll get in contact with myself. Um, and then I look after them right from the off, um, to engage with them, find out what, um, see if I can identify some of the barriers um, and what's going on with them. So we've noticed from some participants, even just even just putting their hands up and going, I need some help, um, is a real massive issue for them. Um, and so I try and make that journey, um, even to get to the beach, as painless as possible. Um, some people have anxieties about leaving the house, all sorts of things. So um, they register with me. I'll talk them through the, the process of getting there. Um, we complete a risk assessment with them, find out a little more about them and what their thought process, processes are, what issues may, may come up on the day, for example. 
Um, and then we, we get them to the beach. Um, we look after we look after them in terms of um, just anything that could stop them getting there, we will help them with. So little things such as car park fees. So you might find that some participants um, are having some real issues in relation to their finances, it's, and that's just loading on top of the trauma that's going on with them. So we ensure all their car parking's paid, just little things like that. And then they um, rock up to the session and they're introduced to their um, officer. So um, the difference with our um, surf therapy is that um, you have your own instructor. So it's, it's a one-to-one session. Um, we do some land-based um, fears and concerns um, and they speak about those. And then we go into the water for, um, for the session itself, having done a little bit of meditation and yoga on the beach and just centering them and just putting them in the now. And then we come out and talk about their fears and concerns and the psychological journey that we've um, actually taken them on for the day. Uh, and it's uh, proved to be really powerful stuff. Brilliant. Now, do you do the yoga meditation before or after the surf session? So we do it as part of a warm-up. Um, what we tend to find in, in policing um, terms is that every warm-up that we ever seem to do is, you know, you, you run around in a circle, touch your right hand down, touch your left hand down, um, all things like that. It's, it's, it's very the same, the same. And the last thing the participants want to do, especially if they've got body image um, issues as well, is to rock around the beach in a wetsuit um, in front of members of the public almost going, look at me, I'm, I'm warming up for my surf section. Um, so we take them to a quiet area of the beach and we'll sit down and we'll just do some very, very simple um, meditation, just sitting on the beach, listening to the ocean and, and what's around. And then we lead very gently into a yoga-based warm-up. It's all, it's all very low impact, but it's um, related to the actual surfing moves themselves um, just to get their body um, moving and, and loosened up, ready for ready for their session. Brilliant. Well, I had a, a guest on, Tom Hewitt, who has um, an organization in South Africa called uh, Surfers Not Street Kids. And one of the comments that really stuck with me that he said they the kids you know go and surf, and again there there are fears. All these kids live right by the ocean, but due to uh, fictional stories that have been told to them by some of the non-black you know people that inhabited that land. I kept them out of the ocean. So these, these, these generations have never learned to swim. So, you know, obviously, the, again, like you were saying, there's that confidence building of them swimming. But then, you know, a lot of them ended up being like world level surfers is incredible. But one of the big things they did was after the surf session, then they sat down. And this was usually more of a group setting, but they would talk. And, and that was a kind of unofficial counseling session. So they'd already been out in nature. They'd been in the cold water. They, you know, they had the physical exertion. They had that endorphin release, and he said they were so much more apt to really open up after that surfing session. Yeah, and that, and actually, I I, I know Tom personally. Actually, um, we we see each other regularly on the school run, so um, I know exactly who you're, whose program you're on about. And it's a his program is really powerful for children, and for the same reason that it reinforces that belief in yourself almost. And we talked earlier um, about the research that Sam and I did for this specific project. And a part of that was to talk to Tom over a flat white, actually, um, around what he'd done. Um, we, we are really, really fortunate that there have been a number of surf therapy programs that have come before us. And we're able to draw on the successes of that. And I think the key thing that we found, or one of the key elements, is that um, empowerment and belief in yourself. And that's what we try to weave through our psychological pathway. Um, 
to give them that strength that when they leave the session, that every single person leaves thinking, right, well, I've accomplished something today and I've learned something or done something that I thought wasn't possible. There's kind of those small little roots like an oak tree um, where they kind of just spread out and they kind of, they emerge much, much stronger at the end of their session, having overcome something that they thought just either wasn't possible or that they've been told for months or years that, you know, you're never going to do. So it's something that we really, really try to recreate. Brilliant. Well, James, you mentioned about the cold water therapy. If I surfed here in Florida, it wouldn't be <laughs> that cold. Um, but no. obviously, <laughs> in the UK, our ocean is is uh, you know, definitely a little cooler. I remember having to take a bath when I was a kid after a day at the beach. So my uh, my manhood would would pop back out of my abdomen. So, yeah. <laughs> so, t- so tell me about the uh, the 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 cold water element on the healing side. So that's something, again, from the research that we found, there's loads of stuff around cold water immersion, ice baths, cold water swimming, and it's used across the world. Um, and we kind of thought, well, what, what is it about surf, uh, about the cold water? And I think no one specifically tapped into the exact, this is what it does and this is why. We all know that it does work, and there's loads of research around the fact that it does work and what the positive benefits are. But I think we're starting to gain more of an insight recently. And there's some, some really fascinating stuff that's come out of a, a study in, um, uh, over in California with the US Navy, San Diego, where they wired people up to cold caps um, to measure the brainwaves. And they say that there's certain brainwaves which are suppressed when you're in cold water. And then there are certain other brainwaves which are, um, uh, I suppose, excited is probably the best way or um, expanded. Um, I'm, and I'm not, clearly not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at both these things to help me out with the word. Oh, we're just letting him dig a bit of staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit that bit out. No, that's staying <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. So, so essentially what I'm getting at is that there is a physiological impact on the brain and on the brain waves, which both create a suppressive effect on negative emotions and also enhance positive effects. So the dopamine endorphin high that you get from exercise you get from surfing so i think what what the, the great thing about cold water immersion is, is that when you do get that physical effect that it does have something you know it, it just it's bracing everyone comes out and they're they're saying i feel alive i feel really invigorated and you get that kind of impact and what we've seen through the research and what we've done with our participants is that you almost grab the participant or the, or the person that's under the cold water and say right you've got this amazing effect now now talk or tell us this um you know or discuss what the issues are and that that point uh, where there's a physical effect on the body people just want to open up and talk about stuff or they feel that there's a close bond because you know if there's five or six people that are in a group that are all going through this horrendously cold experience together they all come out and they say oh don't we all feel alive it's massively bonding and that's what we kind of use to to great success really do you feel like there's a there's a kind of reset of the hypervigilance to to actually be able to deregulate the nervous system, and that's why they have that kind of flow state feeling when they come out? That is a much better way of putting what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> just said yeah. everything he said in about <laughs> two seconds. Much better. Much better. I've been okay. talking about this for four years, so I got the heads up. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, what you just said then is is, is perfect. Very well. Yeah, that that study in San Diego is really interesting because they've. I think you can still see it. I think there might the actual um, there's a news report, an American news report on it, um, which is still on YouTube. I think you can find it on at the moment. But they basically part it's a, a part of that bigger study showed that, um, and it's something that's been known about for quite a while. I think that the brain waves of someone suffering with PTSD, a couple of the brain waves are really elevated and a couple are really suppressed. And they found that when they take these people out surfing who've got who've been diagnosed with PTSD 
the ones that are suppressed start to come to the fore again and the ones that are elevated start to be subdued and they get a much more natural kind of brainwave um, brainwave rhythm. With it. And it's really, really interesting to see that. And it, you can actually almost see it happening as they're surfing because they've got these these um, pads on measuring the brain waves as they're doing the activity. So it's, um, it's really, really interesting to see. Now, have you got any, you're obviously not mentioning names at all, but any kind of success stories that really come to mind? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> we've had probably upwards of about 80 people that have come through the program now, which considering we're still sort of within the pilot phase of the program is is great for us because we've had quite a large number of people to come through. But yeah, we've, we've had phenomenal success with a range of different things. So we've seen people go back to work months before they were expected to return. Um, we've had people who've been signed off sick due to the stress and things that they're experiencing, the trauma they've experienced. And they've, um, they've come back to work a lot sooner than was anticipated. So we've spoke to some of their supervisors who've said, you know, we were planning for a a staged return um, months in advance and they've come back on full duties well before we ever expected. We've had, um, we've actually had people who've, who've said that they were openly suicidal. So having suicidal thoughts and feelings. um, And then they've been through the program and it's helped them sort of, cope with those and and help them cope with those thoughts and those feelings and in some cases not I wouldn't go as far as to say cured them because I don't know if you can ever really fully cure someone with those those issues but certainly help them longer term to cope with that um, and people who have who've overcome massive challenges as well and, and changed their life as a result we were talking about physical fitness earlier and we've had people who've come through and they've gone away and said, God, you know, I, I overcame that. So yeah, you know what, I'm going to tackle my diet and I'm going to tackle this and all these different aspects of my life that I'm not happy with. And they've started to lose weight and make really positive sort of life changes as a result coming through. So yeah, really amazing results, which is um, immensely satisfying for all of us. I think as well that we've got examples of where they've addressed some of the issues, previous issues that have gone in their lives. So we had um, a paramedic who came through um, recently and her mother was um, killed in an accident 20 years ago. She's never, ever spoken um, about her mother to her own children. She just felt that she couldn't. Um, and at the time when her mother was alive, she used to write a lot of poetry. And when her mother died, she stopped writing. And I was in a session with her and we came out for a little bit of a rest. And we just sat on the boards on the beach, just staring out to sea. And she suddenly opened up about her mother um, and just said, wow why have I just told you about that? I've, I just don't speak about this kind of thing. She goes, and wow, opening up to you, it's not that bad. I, I think I can cope with this. Um, and subsequently, she's now spoken, got photos out that she's never shown her own children of their grandmother, showed photos, and she said within 10 minutes of getting home after the session, uh, she started writing um, a poem about the session. And quote from her is, you know, you guys have made me find find my voice again so it's incredibly powerful um and we really do make a difference to people's lives and it that just makes everything so worthwhile no that's that's amazing and you just sparked something i didn't ask you guys about yet and this is a perfect time to do it doing this for four years hearing so many amazing stories from people from the military you know the first responder professions i mean all, all these different guests that i have on one just resounding common denominator is a lot of people in our professions 
have traumatic childhoods. And I think that there's, there's a two-pronged element to that. One, they want to stop the cycle. They don't want to be the abuser. You know, they were the recipient. And B, they want to be the protector now. So they turn to the police, the military, the fire, the EMS to, to be the fixer rather than the herder. So, you know, with you getting to really have these conversations with people, did you, did you find that there were some people that, that it wasn't so much even the job, but maybe the cumulative effect of that, but also the childhood trauma element as well? It's, it's funny that you, yeah, that you should bring that up because this particular um, person, her mother was a florist and she'd followed in her mother's footsteps um, and then having experienced um, more of the, uh, the, the traffic collision that her mother was involved in and she'd gone to the scene of it um, and she saw the work the paramedics did, <clears throat> that's actually why she became a paramedic herself. So she had this trauma that she'd not spoken about, had become the the lifesaver, if you like, and for 20 years, just, yeah, just had bottled that completely up. So, um, yeah, it's, it's incredible that the, the stories that you start to um, unfold and, and you find out about people and it just shows how actually we're just your human beings, <laughs> whether you're a first responder or not, and you've all got feelings and emotions and you all need support and help. Um, and that's why um, I think all three of us love working on this project because it's completely a peer support um, right from the start and continuing on and helping our colleagues. It really, really seems to access something that maybe it's the whole, you know, here, here in a lot of the psychological stuff around emergency workers about the, the hero complex and stuff like that, about how you, you believe you're the rescuer and you have this identity as the rescuer. So you can't need rescuing yourself. It's not, you know, it's not, um, you feel like it's not okay to acknowledge that you need help yourself. And um, what we're seeing through a lot of the people coming through is there's this willingness to to make that admission, and that's like the first step for them. But the stuff they're talking about can, like you said, just go right the way back to their childhood. So we've had a couple of people who've dis- disclosed childhood trauma as being their their primary thing, and this, I mean, people who bottled that up for you know thirty, forty plus years and not addressed it in counseling sessions or other forms of therapy that they've attended but for some reason have felt like when they're with us and in the environment that we put them in that they they're safe to do that with us so um, yeah definitely a definitely an aspect to what we see brilliant now you mentioned about um barrier to entry joe was talking about the, you know, the parking fees and those kind of areas um we talked briefly before we started recording and you know, one of the pros, I think, of the NHS, when fully funded, when fully staffed, is the potential for people to immediately find help, you know, get with a counselor that, that is the right match for them. That is such an incredibly horrendous barrier to entry here in the US because, you know, they might not have the insurance, they might not be a network. I mean, there's so many things to stop someone who's in crisis who can't even see straight from accessing a professional. So tell me about the pros and cons of, of the way it is at the moment. And then, and then, you know, I'd love to hear what it should like from an NHS should look like from an NHS perspective. Well, we, we don't, um, because obviously we're first responders, there's a lot of care that's put in place for us through our own occupational health departments. So we're not always dependent on, on the NHS and the support that's there because we've got that sort of inroad through our occupational health. But even so, um, the demand that's placed on that is absolutely massive. And we've had we've had participants who've come through and said, and one of the comments that sticks in my mind was, 
someone who had gone through, who felt like he, he needed counselling and had, had sort of come to terms with the fact that he needed help and had put his hand up um, and was told that he there was too much of a weight um, and he couldn't access it. And his words were, well, do I need to book my crisis in advance then? Um, and it, it, there is a huge demand currently on, on certainly on our service. There's definitely a huge need in our organisation for for any form of therapy that's going to help someone, which is one of the things that motivated us to to do what we're doing, really. Yeah, and why do you think there's, there's a huge demand? You know, what's what's changed? Do you think it was always there and people were finally able to to talk about it? <clears throat> I think because we're now in a society where it is okay for people to talk up about issues and problems and, you know, the whole thing of it's okay to talk and it's okay to not be okay. I think people are now realising it's almost like a relief that, oh, right, actually, I can talk about it, but what it has done is put a demand up front for those services that traditionally have always relied on very traditional talking based therapies. But what Surfwell aims to be a part of is that new approach to action based therapy, which is, you know, a, a short, simple shock, um, single, I'm trying to think of the, the word that you know, single session, single session interventions where people can come along and, and experience kind of almost like a really short, sharp shock to the system. Um, you know, and this is probably more appropriate for those people who haven't got the severe, complex, five or six massive life-changing issues that are all going on at the same time or complex trauma from childhood. There's a What you almost need now is a selection of different options to tailor to individuals. So, you know, I personally, from my point of view, I haven't had any kind of major traumatic experiences or any kind of PTSD episodes where I think, you know, if, if I was in that position, I'd want to go and speak to a counsellor in a clinical setting with mental health posters on the wall. That, for me, wouldn't work at all. Whereas something like this, where I can go and just be in a neutral setting, not have to be there to formally talk about what I'm, you know, I'm there for. Um, doing some kind of sports or something slightly different, for me, that would work if, if I needed that kind of treatment. And I think what we're trying to do is to create an environment where there's lots of different approaches tailored to the individual counselling for some may be exactly what people need and it may be that you know the, the thought of getting a wetsuit on and going to the beach is a complete nightmare and it's seen as a complete joke and they wouldn't want to engage in that at all and that's fine we understand that and similarly EMDR lots of other types of you know non-traditional types of traditional treatments have all got their place but I think what we need to do is expand out because now we're opening up the floodgates for people to say it's okay to talk we need to have that, that option for them to be able to talk no, absolutely. I think you've illustrated with your journeys up to this point and that's served you well. And that's a, a, an observation I've made. So I talk about locking memories away. I started writing a book about six, seven months ago and it completely popped out of my head that I almost died in the house fire when I was four. Kind of yeah. significant, <laughs> becoming a fireman. So again, there's probably <laughs> yeah. that, that psychological road there. Um, and yeah. I always wanted to be a fireman until they told me I was colorblind. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So you moved to America and did it over there. I did. I was like, fuck you guys. I'm going to. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, you've been where there's a will, there's a way. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, what What I've realized is what, what, why was I okay? You know, I went through a horrendous divorce. You know, I worked on some extremely busy rigs in, in inner cities that were the worst parts of town where we ran 24 hours straight almost every single shift. But again, it was the it was the mental practice, it was the nutrition, it was the exercise. So, you know, I, I had times where I was completely low, don't get me wrong, but never, you know, past that critical point. So, you know, how I mean you hit the nail on the head, having that diverse spectrum where it might be in equine therapy, canine therapy, surfing, diving, skydiving, 
you know, you name it, and you know, and or you know, psilocybin treatment, uh, you know, EMDR, all these different options. Again, sadly, some are illegal to help our veterans and first responders heal from PTSD because you have yeah. to use a you know a, a illicit drug. Um, but regardless, you know, there are so many different options, and I think that's it now. Is getting people to understand you don't have to lie on a couch. Especially when you've heard horror stories because the counselor starts crying when you tell them what's going on in your head because they are not well versed in dealing with people like you and me. Um, you know, but whereas you, you're a police officer taking a police officer surfing. So you know that person gets exactly what you're going through. And that's exactly yeah. where a lot of our so in our initial barrier was it doesn't seem right that the police, you know, we're, we're police officers. We should be out doing police work and being police officers, not taking people out surfing. Whereas actually, flip that on its head. And what we're doing is imparting our coping strategy that we've got as a peer supporter. So the people that all come along know that there's no expectation to open up in front of us unless they feel they're able to. The environment that we build is based around trust. So we've got lots of training and lots of things that we've put in place, which all our participants will know before they arrive. And they'll know that they're there with a group of people who have been through and probably going through the same issues they are. And actually then what nails it at the very end is that, ah, great, the group in front of me are all police officers. So if I do think I want to open up and talk to you about the collision that I've been to or the child that I saw that was, you know, tragically killed three days ago, all those things that they may not want to open up to a complete stranger in a clinical setting on a couch, they think, well, actually, at least you understand what I'm on about because you've probably seen it. And, you know, as police officers, we all see the same thing. And it just immediately removes that barrier. It's that relatability which then builds massive trust. And putting in something like surfing or other therapy, equine therapy, or you know all the other therapies that you mentioned involving a sport, where there's an inherent slight risk of danger so with surfing, you know we say to them at the start that there is a danger. We want to push them to the edge of their comfort zone so that they either go, you know, so for some people it may just be setting a toe in the water is enough to to induce panic. So that's fine. We work with them and they won't go beyond their toes. But there's other people that may want to go out right at the back and surf five, six foot waves. But for them, that's still that element of danger. And I think what we do is say, look, you are going to be in a position where there is an inherent danger to your personal safety, but you're safe with us because we're all trained to, you know, various levels of beach lifeguard, surf coaching. We're all trained to those levels. So, you know, you can put your trust in us. And that coupled with the fact that we're police officers and they can talk to us safely in a safe environment is unbelievably empowering and people do feel that really strong bond really quickly which is probably where part of the success comes really and there's a there's a genuine aspect to you know, every every member of the team we're very i say we're very i was going to say we're very lucky but we have obviously chosen the people that are part of our team very carefully but we've, we are lucky to have such a good group of people and i i think what's come across from some of the participants and something that we've always hoped is that true genuine aspect to the fact that we care about them and, and their welfare and their ongoing welfare and it, it hopefully it just really comes across so for some people and we, we know because we've been told it's sometimes it's their first experience of being around colleagues who are openly saying that they genuinely care about their welfare and they want to look out for them and make sure they're okay and for some people that that in itself is a really powerful motivator absolutely joe carry on please yeah i was going to say um the trust for me is one of the main things that that we um invoke right from the start from that first engagement um and then you get to the uh, the highs and lows session at the end of our day and um i think it shows that we we work on an emotional level as well so if people if people want to have a good old cry basically on the session 
do you know they can and some of the instructors like you said like in that clinical setting where um your counselor you know that you don't want them to end up in tears or they end up in tears because they don't understand that trauma we do understand it and actually we show our colleagues do you know if, if we have a if we have a little tear come out of our come out of our eyes as well it's fine and and it seems to act as a real bonding um, session when that emotion is shared in the room as well. And when they've got um, one of our instructors, he's um, a big six foot two arm response officer, and he sits there with a little tear rolling down his cheek. Actually, it's so impactive. It really is. Um, and it, it really helps with all the bonds that, that go on. Um, and they feel that they can come back to us um, and they will contact us and we're, and we're there for their ongoing support. Yeah, it's, it's great. We, we really contact on a really good level with them. Beautiful. Well, that vulnerability is is the most powerful thing. I think smashing the facade that so many of us were raised in, which was, you know, rub some dirt in it. You know, if you signed up for this, if you can't handle it, find another job kind of mentality. And now getting, you know, these physically uh, intimidating men and women that have the courage to actually be vulnerable and be like, well, of course this stuff bothers me. You know, I'm, I'm a human being that is how we start saving people that that ridiculous facade that i don't even know where it came from post world war ii um that you know is completely detached from what real warriors male and female actually do um you know reprogram that reprogramming the way that we think about that i think is a huge lifesaver for so many people yeah right well then um staying with you joe what about the financial side how are you guys able to fund the project do you know, I'm going to bat that one to um, to James because um, I tend to do a lot of the referral stuff. So um, James and Sam tend to be the financial guys. So I'm going to pass that one over if I may. Please. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the financing, um, so in terms of the financing, the, um, the the initial kind of concept was pitched to our executive board uh, January 2019. And what we asked for was some financing to, to run the pilot for a year just to test the concept as a proof of concept, really. And um, really, really key for us was to not have any impact on the frontline uh, resourcing of our staff. So essentially what we were after is some backfilling uh, or some costs to backfill those that were removed from frontline duties. Because obviously if we are police officers, then there may be an impact on the frontline, albeit longer term, we're going to impact by returning our staff quicker. So there'll obviously be a saving in terms of sickness benefits. We've been funded by Police Care UK, who are a charity based in the UK to fund police wellbeing initiatives, essentially. So we've got some funding for them to, to supply kit and equipment and also to where we take officers off frontline duties. We can then backfill uh, with other members of staff so that there isn't an impact on the frontline. So that's a really, really big part of what we've done to, to reduce the cost over the first year. Um, and at the moment, as we said, we're in that trial period where we're looking to extend the pilot to, to assist other emergency services, uh, which is the next kind of exciting part of our project. Um, and we're in talks with various charities at the moment at a global level, actually, um, to fund various elements of the project with the longer term goal being that the, um, the delivery of that project becomes self-sustaining so that it's it, you know longer term, it's sustainable, but also so that we can offer it um, with minimal or no impact on our policing services. And that's the long-term goal. At the minute, I haven't got any more kind of specifics on that, but that's that's what we're developing as we speak. Brilliant. Now, is it a, um, a blueprint that you're hoping to expand over the UK? Yeah, so we've got our website, surfworld.com and surfworld.co.uk. 
um, which obviously contains all the uh, the details of how other organisations can refer in. So at the moment, we've taken out the Southwest Ambulance Service, which obviously is regional, southwest of England, um, and we've taken out uh, members of staff from the Firefighters Charity, which is a national UK charity aimed at supporting the well-being of firefighters and their families. Um, and also Cornwall Fire have sent a couple of members of staff down to, to trial as a on a kind of demonstration basis. So um, at the moment, it's really super exciting for us because obviously, in simple terms, emergency services workers all face the same kind of trauma and the same kind of stress, which makes us all relatable to each other. But we see this as an opportunity for genuine collaboration between police, fire and ambulance um, and the wider kind of emergency services. So at the moment, we've looked at RNLI um, and other emergency services to support sending staff to us to make it a genuine collaboration but at the moment again that's something that's being worked on and super exciting but we're just considering you know which pathway we're going to take at the moment beautiful well for people listening is there any way anyone can help in terms of well yeah loads <laughs> can we have another another nine hours in each day would be brilliant <laughs> there's not enough hours in the day at the moment um no on, on a serious note that the, the the future is super exciting. We're we're being cited by the global um, international surf therapy organisation as the first of its kind in the world for you know dedicated supported emergency services program. Um, so I think any kind of any kind of support from other emergency services workers would be something really really good. Um, we the funding is a is a major major issue. Obviously, that's something that we're looking to to work on over the next couple of months to work out how we can make it self sustaining. So, if there's any kind of charitable organisations out there that would like to get involved, either in support, um, it really, there's so many different options for people to support us. Either you know with positive publicity, anyone that wants to come along. We, we've had some contact just today from some organisations over in America who want to try this for their emergency services within the fire department. So, I think we've put so much work into developing a concept based on all the other therapy providers, you know, across the world and certainly within the UK um, to make this concept really successful and, and proven in terms of psychological and also the, the wider benefits for mental health. So anything that we can get to support that would be really, really appreciated. Beautiful. Do you know which, um, which agencies over here reached out to you? Which, which kind of area of fire? So California, we've got a an academic called Carly Rogers, who was part of the Jimmy Miller Foundation, who worked with the global um, the international surf therapy organisation. We we've been fortunate to link in with her and also with Chris Primaccio from the international surf therapy organisation. Um, Carly just today has reached out and said that it's something she's looking at for um, first responders over there, um, and also. Uh, I'm trying to think of their actual thing. It's Operation Surf. So Amazing Surf Adventures is called over in California. who run Operation Surf, which obviously has come out to the UK as well via Help for Heroes. But Operation Surf were really pivotal in the early days for us for developing the concept because they've obviously reached out to and and do so on a on a on a you know great basis for the military over there. Um, they've provided some support with the program development. Um, and they've obviously reached out again to, to see what we can do to further develop the work that we're doing. But those guys are doing spectacular work for the military over there. And, you know, anything we can do to support the work that they've, they've helped us with would be great. Brilliant. Well, you see, one thing that always strikes me a lot is so many people that come on here are police officers, firefighters, you know, medics, the members of the military that have taken it upon themselves to make a change. And, and, and you know, it's incredible. And right now it's the only option we have. But my yeah. thing is, you know, at some point, those organizations that we work for need to reinvest in those, you know, agencies. So, for example, 
with, with what you're doing with the police in the UK, you know, ultimately, if you're having the results, then the taxpayer, you know, the, 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 the wellness initiative should include what you're doing as far as the actual police budget. Yeah. And again, that's something that's beyond our kind of realms of, of scope of what we're able to do. Sadly, <laughs> I wish we could. We, so the unique thing and the really, really key thing about what we're doing is it's been supported um, at the top of our organisation. We've had the, you know, we've had the buy in from our chief constable and the exec level to, to trial this, which has been brilliant. Um, we've had to work hard to be able to trial it. Um, and we're all serving police officers at the kind of at the bottom of our organisation, really. So it's something that we're on the front line. We know the stresses and the strains faced by our colleagues. And it's been really, really great to have that support from the top to drive what we believe in personally. There's an element of trust initially because a lot of what we were saying is, please trust us, it will work, please trust us. And then a lot of us going away going, they're really trusting us, please let this work, please let this work. So we've invested a lot of our own energy and our own time initially in you know, the support of the, the University of Exeter Business School in, in analysing our research um, and kind of embedding themselves in the programme has meant that we have now got that independently um, academically assessed kind of um, research paper that goes behind what we're doing to say, actually, from an academic point of view, that first year, the proof of concept, it does work. So it gives us some credibility when we go back to the bosses of our organisation and say, look, this, this has worked so far. We'd like the opportunity to invest and to fund this and to, to run forward with it. The thing that obviously we've got to consider is that, you know, we need to be accountable, quite rightly so, to the public and the taxpayer for the hours that we spend doing this has to be something that's returned tangibly to the organisation and also to the taxpayer. So we need to be able to make sure that it is sustainable and that we're not just all being, you know, being seen to be off on a jolly taking police surfing. There's got to be that specific psychological pathway that's you know that's behind all this, so that we can return some tangible benefits. And as we kind of alluded to before and discussed, the university findings have found that we've returned people to work quicker, and when they're in work, you know they're performing much better. They're, the issues around absenteeism and presenteeism have been reduced, and we've had a positive impact on their own well-being. So for us, there's a whole host of different benefits that we're you know we're continuing to seek to achieve, and also we can we can demonstrate so far that during that proof of concept that we have achieved. I think what it goes to show as well is that these organisations, our organisations, um, other organisations can, you know, trust from the ground up. This hasn't come from an idea from, you know, top level down saying, oh, here's an idea, go and progress it. It's us on the lower ranks going, this is the issues that we, these are the issues that we have. How are we going to address them ourselves? Let's think of something new and, you know, being just get out there and do it and being allowed to to do it and that's where I think our executive and the chief constables of Devon Cornwall and Dorset uh, have allowed us to do that um, and I think if organisations were more open-minded to that it could be incredible what um, what we could achieve together working together. Yeah well touching back to you know, what you mentioned about the orientation and you know being told that we live for six years after retirement and die and that's a that's a universal statistic and I personally believe a lot of that's to do with the shift system as well and sleep deprivation and the effects of that but um, I think that again a common denominator that's come from from all these interviews is the the false economy so the the drive to look good in a single budget year versus understanding you know a, a much longer term goal and in, in implementing fitness and mental health initiatives is actually going to not only keep your workforce a lot healthier, a lot happier, but is actually going to save you a lot of money down the road too. Because 
if we die on average five years after retirement, that you know is a huge indicator that there's a lot of ill health towards the end, and that translates into medical retirement injuries, mistakes, and lawsuits, and all these things. So when you add those up and do a real budget over 15, 20 years, you know a lot of these people that have started putting in fitness um, initiatives have saved hand over fist. So it's just getting people to understand that, yeah, this year this may seem expensive to. You know, add the surfing program to put you know extra police on the streets so they're back in pairs so they're not as vulnerable and don't have to you know rely on for example in the US deadly force that that is going to save lives and money you know 5 10 15 years from now yeah and there's there's as i said there's a lot of stuff that's beyond our kind of scope of of comment really but in simple terms yeah there is a hell of a lot of um of emphasis on proactive approaches and sometimes the proactive approach is quite hard to stomach because there's an element of trust involved as well there's a you know there's a bit of just trust us because the investment now yeah it could be quite significant but actually like you say 10 15 years down the line could have significant benefits and i think that's the same with anything that is a proactive approach because you are relying quite heavily either on someone else that's done it before and the evidence that they've, you know, the evidence that they've got or an element of just trust us because at the minute we think this is right and it's based on some fairly strong hypotheses, but that's kind of the way, you know, that's the way that we're looking to go. And that's the same across any kind of proactive approach really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to touch on one more subject and then we'll go to some closing questions quickly, but um, something that again has been uh a constant message from from several guests now is the mental health impact of this isolation this pandemic that we've seen not only with you know depression anxiety but also with domestic abuse and child abuse and some of the other things in your part of the country what have you witnessed the last six months so i think we're quite lucky in our part of the country um in that the the infection rates have been really low probably the lowest in the country actually in the whole of the uk so Speaking personally, locally, we've not experienced a significant um, a significant impact. And that said, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say we've had no impact at all. It's been significant in terms of the impact it's had on services and policing and a whole host of, you know, lots of different agendas across the, the, the region. Um, nationally, isolation is going to be a significant issue. And I think we're going to have to plan or certainly organisations are going to have to plan for the long haul because the impact that so taking the southeast and certain other areas where the, the demand has been significantly higher and you are seeing those horrendous hospitalization numbers, you know, you've got people that are making awful decisions and are seeing some pretty gruesome stuff and that's going to have an impact certainly years and years down the line. Um, but I, it, it's quite hard for me to comment, for, for any of us to comment personally on our experiences because it's going to vary wildly from what you'll have seen over there and, and obviously from regionally what's happened over in the uk really so it's quite a difficult one for us to comment on specifically yeah and you hit on a very valid point though and that's something that uh, you know i think would have been a great approach rather than the blanket which is you know we have london's and new york's and we have rural england and rural america and you know i i just me personally i wish there'd been you know a, a spectrum of reactions to this if you're in a densely populated city that you're all crammed on top of each other that's one set of initiatives and if you're out in rural bath you know where i grew up that it's a, a slightly different thing so you yes you're you're containing where there's a mass population mass infection but you're not locking every single person down some of which like you said are not seeing much of anything which is the same where i am in florida 
we're slowly opening up now because we didn't have a second wave. It was as flat as a pancake. And that's nothing but good news. But that's still going to have a huge mental health and financial toll on all those people that were told to stay home. Yeah, and I think you've got the old... um the other issue of so yeah there may not have been a specific local issue these are unprecedented times aren't they and i think you've you've got the other the, the other issue of that um the, the vicarious trauma so we're all watching the news over here and everyone's got access to the news on whatsapp or bbc news app or whatever you know whatever medium you access the news through and you're reading and seeing horrendous stuff going on in the news and albeit we may not locally have such an issue or you may live in an area, like you say, in a, in a rural part of England where you think, well, you know, I haven't seen it. I don't know anyone that's had it. And what's the issue? But they're looking at the news and seeing the daily death toll and the issues around, you know, certain other parts of the population which are more densely populated, which could be half an hour away from where they live. So you've got that massive trauma um, that's affected people just completely differently. But it's what you read and see in the news that could have more of an impact. And, you know, you could have my grandparents who hear the news and see the news and think that this is this is horrendous and it's terrible but actually where they live there's been hardly any cases so it's it's really difficult to assess the the impact and i think from a personal view you know my personal view is we're, we're probably going to see the impact for a lot longer than we think you know it's going to be down the line sort of five ten years time that we see the impact and you know the children that are coming home from school and that are all playing out and for them it's like well we're not catching it we're not having any issues but actually they're still hearing the news. They're still seeing their parents' concerned faces. They're seeing people walking around the town with masks on. It's going to impact them for a lot longer than we think. Yeah, anything to add, Joe? Um, just my personal point of view. Yeah, I've not, I've not known anyone who's uh, personally who's gone <clears throat> down with it as such. Um, but even just chatting to um, you know my parents on the phone and, and skyping, and I've deliberately stayed away from them because you know I do overtime shifts in custody. I could, um, you know, open myself up to, um, to to it as well, and then, you know, inadvertently go over and, and, and speak with them. So I've deliberately kept away, and just, you know, even that, having the toll of that is is hugely impactful. I I can't imagine what, you know, some people working on the front line of the NHS, for example, or or having parents in care homes, how that impacts on people. Um, and, you know, it's like that dripping effect, isn't it? You, you you may not know anybody, but you're going through times or at work um, where your pocket's getting really full up with everything that's going on and it just takes that little trigger. And I'm sure COVID is a lot of triggers for a lot of people. And um, I think we're going to see, um, you know, a, a big impact on this, you know, a few months down the line. Um, and we need to be more ready uh, to cope with it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, I know Sam had to, to leave to go take care of uh, you know, his family. Um, so I just want to close with uh, you know, one question. If people want to reach out to you, if you could just kind of reiterate what the website was as well. And then if you have any social media areas that they can contact you to or follow. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, we've got our website, which is live, uh, which is www.surfwell.com or .co.uk. Um, that's obviously got some details around where we came from what our journey is and how you can reach out to us um, if you're an individual who wants to access the therapy over here um, or indeed if you're an organization that's interested in learning about what we're doing so for anyone that is listening as i said we've got connections across um that we've spoken you know in the netherlands and in the usa um if there are any organizations that that would like to get in touch and think actually this could work for me or for my organization then we'd love to hear from you um the international surf therapy organization is a really good point of contact for for connecting 
similar like-minded organizations who do want to get involved or who want to share their academic research. And again, their goal is to connect academic bodies together um, to learn best practice. So we're really keen to share what we've experienced and what we've done. And also if there's anyone else that says, actually, we're doing this and you could learn from us again, really, really keen to hear about that. Um, we're on Twitter um, and on Instagram um, and our at OpSurfWell um, on, on both of those. So you can get us on there for updates on what we're achieving at the moment. Um, and then finally, if you want to email us, um, it's surf at devonandcornwall.pnn.police.uk. And again, we'd love to hear um, from any organisations that think they want to support or get in touch or, or offer some guidance or indeed learn what we're doing. So, um, yeah, any support would be great. Thank you. Beautiful. And Joe, anything to add? No, I think James has pretty much summed it all up there. But um, thank you ever so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. Um, and we appreciate all the ongoing support. People have been fantastic all around the world. And we hear from so many different people every day. And um, the support that we get just inspires us. And we know we're doing the right thing. Um, some of those days where it just gets to you a bit, I'm just getting those emails of um, support in. Just, just boosts us again. And, and we, we're off again. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, uh, please thank Sam for me as well. I mean, it was a great conversation. Um, you know, obviously, I like to explore topics and some we're able to speak more freely about than others. Um, but yeah, just getting the perspective from each different you know, lens, every every set of eyes around the planet, especially on on the, you know, the physical and the mental health stuff, I think is so important because as those layers of knowledge increase, it kind of breaks down that stigma because people's argument about you know, for the stigma just completely gets, you know, shut down really. So thank you so much for seeing an issue and then stepping up and being part of the solution. Thank you. Thanks, thank you very much.